Well, good morning, everyone. Sorry about our sound. We have a glitch in the system this morning, and um, sometimes you just got to power through it. <laughs> that happens on occasion. We have a wire disconnected or something happens. I know it's been, uh, we missed a few things at home, so if you've uh, been at home and missed early on, and, um, and then this morning, so sometimes you just kind of got to bear with it. We'll have to adjust the sound between services, so hopefully we'll have it by the next service. Let's open with uh, prayer. Father God, I thank you so much for this time together, Lord. And uh, Father, I pray that you will just speak through me this morning, that you close our ears to any error that I may speak. As we come to this last chapter in 2 Samuel, and close out the book on 2 Samuel this week and next week, and then jump into 1 Kings and continue our series on David's life, Father. As we've looked at this most magnificent king, this most interesting king, this most flawed king. Father, I pray that you would help us to learn from his life. We've not looked at every aspect of his life, but we have looked at so much of his life. And Father, I pray that you would teach us from it you would help us to grow from it. And Father, as we come to the passage today, this most difficult of passages, this most perplexing of passages, maybe one of the most, if not the most perplexing passages in all of the Samuels, Lord, I ask that you would just open our hearts and minds to what you have for us, that you would, that you would help us to think about it, meditate on it. Lord, you are inscrutable. You are confusing. You are not easy to understand. You are mysterious. Help us to be comfortable with that. In Jesus' name, amen. So, the angel at the threshing floor. If you've not heard this passage, this is not a popular passage in Scripture. Got to know your Bible to know this passage. If you've read your Bible, if you've read the Old Testament, then you will know this passage. If you've not read your Bible very much, this may be new to you. If you're a newer Christian, this may be new to you. Uh, if you are not familiar with the Old Testament, this will be new to you. If you've read your Bible somewhat, this may be vague to you. If you've read your Bible a whole lot, you will have pondered this passage and you will wonder what in the world is this passage teaching. So, uh, I was reading from Treasury of Bible Illustrations this one interesting passage. Did you ever raise a radish? You put a small black seed into black soil, and in a little while you return to the garden and you find a full-grown radish. The top is green, the body is white and almost transparent, and the skin is a delicate red or pink. What mysterious power reaches out and gathers from the ground the particles which give it form and size and flavor? Whose is the invisible brush that transfers to the root the growing darkness, the hues of summer sunset? If we were to refuse to eat anything until we could understand the mystery of its creation, we'd die of starvation. But mystery, it seems, never bothers us in the dining room. It's only in the church that it causes us to hesitate. I think they're correct. Unanswered questions of faith drive us crazy. 
How many times have you had a bad thing happen to you and you didn't understand why? People have this happen all the time. A really bad thing happens to you and you begin to cry out to God, why is this happening to me? And you begin to search for reasons. You begin to ask God, maybe it was my fault. Maybe it was something that I did. And you begin to search for all kinds of reasons. Maybe you can't find a reason. So then maybe you begin to look outside yourself. Maybe it was something that you did. And you begin to blame other people, other things. Couldn't be you. Some of us are naturally inclined to blame ourselves. Some of us are naturally inclined to blame others. Depends on your makeup. Maybe I'm not doing enough of X. Maybe I'm doing too much of Y. Maybe if I joined the right church, some people say. Maybe if I ate the right foods. Maybe if I stood on my left foot, touched my tongue to my nose, while rubbing my stomach clockwise and my head counterclockwise, that would do it. People come up with all kinds of crazy concoctions. If I do these things, we like checklists. We're naturally inclined to checklists. And if I do these crazy things, then I'll be fixed. I've had people drive to get holy oils that are going to fix this problem. I've had people go order holy towels from Oral Roberts. If I get this holy towel that some magic man has sweat on, then I'm going to be healed. We look for all kinds of crazy answers. But the answer never comes when we do these things. Our passage this morning gives us one of these uncomfortable mysteries. Why won't God answer these prayers? Why does God do these uncomfortable things? Why does God do some things or allow things to happen that we don't understand? This mystery in 1 Samuel 24 is perplexing to say the least. And it's more perplexing when you read its parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 21. Now what makes it even worse is it's a mystery that ends this book. It's a strange place to end the book of 1 Samuel. If I was the author, I would not end this book here. I would end it with a happy, clappy thing. I might end this book with the death of David, and yet it doesn't end with the death of David. We're going to move to 1 Kings to end with the death of David. It's a strange spot to end a book. So what in the world are we to make of this? We're going to look at it this morning and next week. Now, this passage is interesting, and it's far too deep to contain in one sermon, and we're going to get as far as we can this morning and explore this passage. Now, I want you to look at the very beginning of the passage, and we're going to parallel it in 1 Chronicles 21. Now, if you've never read the first of 1 Chronicles, I'm going to introduce that a little bit this morning. Uh, there's 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. There's 1 Kings and 2 Kings. A lot of people have read 1 and 2 Kings. And then a lot of people will skip 1 and 2 Chronicles. How many here have read 1 and 2 Chronicles all the way through? Okay. How many have read 1 and 2 Kings all the way through? All right. All right. How many have read 1 and 2 Kings but never read 1 and 2 Chronicles all the way through? Anybody? All right. 
So a lot of people will skip First and Second Chronicles because it repeats First and Second Kings. And a lot of people will ask, why in the world does it do that? Well, First and Second Chronicles repeats First and Second Kings because it's the priests. Uh, it, it's kind of the priest explanation of First and Second Kings. And so it's very fascinating to explain, and it kind of actually goes over First Samuel or Second Samuel as well. And it's kind of fascinating to read that book, and you kind of turn to that book for further and deeper explanations. Now, in this particular passage, there's going to be some conflicts between this and First Samuel, or at least on the outside, it looks some, like some conflicts. And so these are the kind of passages when you read these differences that German liberals and secularists, when I say German liberals, what I mean by that are what I've often called revisionists. German liberals are like Schleiermacher or Bart or others. Uh, Bart is kind of in the middle of that. Uh, he, um, not Hegel. Uh, uh, Reichel and a couple others. But these are a group of men or a group of teachers that would say this. They would say that the Bible contains people's attempts to understand God, but they aren't really the words of God. That the Bible isn't inspired by God. It does contain some interesting teachings about God, but that the Bible isn't interconnected, right? And secularists, of course, would teach that the Bible isn't connected at all. It isn't inspired about God at all. It's simply an interesting historical document. And when they look at discrepancies between two books, they would say, ah, this is clearly proof that this is not an inspired book. And so if you're to go to college, and a lot of my friends, when we went to college, we took religion classes. I was a religion major. And we would sit in these classes, and people would offer these contradictions. You would go to some liberal seminaries, a Vanderbilt, a Emory, a Swanee, most Episcopal seminaries, pretty much every Episcopal seminary but one. You would go to these seminaries, and they would offer up these things as proof to Orthodox or to Evangelical students, and they would say, look, aha, the Bible is not true, right? So all these seminaries would try to show that, or all these schools would try to show that. My teachers would try to show that. And it makes sense from their point of view. If you don't believe that there is a God, in the sense of secularists, then you're not going to look any deeper. This book isn't inspired. If you don't believe that there's a God then none of these stories link together. That Jesus didn't rise from the dead. All of these miracles are, of course, a fraud. Nothing. It's just myth. If you're a German liberal and you don't really believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and you don't really believe that he was the Son of God, and you don't really believe that God could inspire us because God is a being that is so different than us that he can't really speak or lead or, or come and intervene, then you also are not going to look for links between the books. You're also not going to believe in inspiration. You're not going to believe in any of that. And so it makes sense when you go to their classes that they're going to teach this. Now, if you are a believer and you're sitting in their classes, lots of times when they would point out contradictions, you would be shocked. You would be astonished. You would say, how in the world do they think that's a contradiction? And Christians would look at each other perplexed. Why? Because we had God within us, right? We've accepted Jesus, and we've lived out this faith. And these things that seemed odd to them were not odd to us because we've actually lived it. We understood it. We lived it in community. It's been passed down to us for thousands of years. This was not odd to us because we have a very different perspective. When we come to Scripture, we think it's interlinked. We think it's connected. 
We think that there was God. We think that there is God. We know that God lives within us. We have a personal relationship. This is very real. And so when we see these discrepancies, we tend to dig a little deeper. We also think that the books are interlinked. We think that there's one theme running throughout Scripture. And we will tend to approach it in a very different way. It's just a difference of how we have presuppositions. We have different presuppositions. We come with a different point of view. That's just something that you need to understand. And so when you come to First Chronicles and First Kings, I'm sorry, First Chronicles and Second Samuel, understand this when we open the scriptures right away. Second Samuel 24.1 starts this way. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. But in Chronicles, there's a different opening. First Chronicles 21.1 Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and his commanders of the army, Go, number Israel from Beersheba to Dan, Bring me a report that I may know their number. I mean, that's a pretty dramatic difference, is it not? That is a dramatic difference. So, is the contradiction here proof that Scripture is unreliable, or is it something else? If you're a secularist or a German liberal, you're going to say, ah, we're going to stop right there. This is proof the Scripture is not reliable. These are two different authors. And yet... Both of these books were incorporated into Scripture and have been for thousands of years, and believers have never seen them as contradictory. So how in the world were they incorporated into Scripture and believers have never seen them as contradictory, and only modernists have thought, ah, these are contradictory. So what's really going on here? Well, consider this passage in 1 Kings 22, 19 to 23. Micaiah, there's a prophet, Micaiah, says this. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. And he's speaking to King Ahab. I saw the Lord. Every time you see the Lord in caps, remember that's Yahweh or in the old English Jehovah, sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, You are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. And therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets, and the Lord has declared disaster for you. So here we see one of the most wicked kings in all of Israel's history, Ahab. This king was so wicked, he murdered priests. He murdered all kinds of believers. His wife was a witch. Now, he hates the Lord. He does not like the Lord. We know this because he kills priests. He kills prophets. He kills believers. There are very few left in Israel after Ahab's reign. 7,000, it says, that don't bend the knee. And so we know he's a wicked guy. And yet, he wants to consult the prophets of the Lord so that when he goes out to battle, he'll win the battle. So as wicked as he is, he knows that Yahweh is to be trusted, and so he wants to consult him. And so when he wants to consult him, God is not to... Look, there's this prophecy about what's going on in heaven. The Lord is not going to be fooled by this guy. 
And so all these spirits come before him, all these angels, all these whatever, and they're coming before, and he says, and this is kind of a, a thing that my, Micaiah sees, and he says, look, who is going to go and speak to this man, to this wicked man? All these people say, I'll go, I'll talk to him, I'll say whatever. And a lying spirit comes. So who is this lying spirit? And he says, you go and speak. And he's speaking, of course, about a false prophet. And this false prophet is going to speak to Ahab. And Ahab is going to trust this false prophet. He's going to whine about Micaiah because Micaiah never speaks what Ahab wants to hear. And so the Lord sends a false or a lying spirit. How in the world does that happen if the Lord is good? Why wouldn't the Lord send a good prophet? Well, he actually did. He sent many godly prophets. Ahab persecuted them, killed them, ran them off. We read in the book of Job that Satan appears for before God, asking to tempt Job. Job 2, 3 through 4, and verse 6. It's actually the whole chapter of 2. Uh, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, and although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason, then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. And again, in Judges 9.23, And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. So it appears, at least in the Old Testament, that in order to try the saints of God, Satan had to ask permission. But in all these instances, then, God sends an evil or a ra'ah, a ra'ah spirit in the Hebrew. It can also be a bad spirit. But he sends these spirits against wicked people. Satan has to ask permission, but he goes against Job. So why does the Lord allow it? Why does he do it? Why does he send them? God unleashes various angels and Satan to punish. Well, surely he doesn't do this in the New Testament, but, well, we kind of see it in the New Testament as well. When a man openly and unrepentantly sleeps with his father's wife, Probably not his mother, because it says his father's wife, so maybe his second wife or something like that. St. Paul tells the Corinthians to excommunicate him. 1 Corinthians 5, 3 through 5. For though I'm absent in body, I'm in present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So this handing of a person over to Satan is removing the protection of the church in their life. That's what this accomplishes. So in the others, it accomplished confusing a wicked king. That's what happened in the Old Testament. It accomplishes punishing a wicked person. But in this one, you have a believer and this is the process of excommunication. We have that in the church today. This is where we get excommunication. Various churches do it in various ways. In the Anglican church, we have a process of excommunication. Excommunication is always done for the sin of rebellion. There may be many sins that you do, 
but the sin of rebellion is the sin that brings about excommunication. You say, wait a minute, Jeff. Uh, that's, here he was sleeping with his father's wife. That's what God excommunicated. No, no. It wasn't sleeping with his father's wife. It was the sin of rebellion. What do you mean by that? He wouldn't repent. It's always that you fail to repent. We first go and we call you to repent. We ask you to change. So whatever the sin you're involved in has to be a notorious sin in the Anglican communion. Right? Otherwise, I ban you from the table. Like if I know that you're privately sinning, right? If I know that Victoria is just rabidly angry against Kimberly, right? Uh, she kicked her in the shin and can't forgive her, whatever else, right? I may go to Victoria and say, you need to forgive, and it may be a private thing, and I need to say, all right, uh, I need to block you from the table, right? You can't pull her hair, and you can't spit in her eye, right? That's a private thing. But if I know that, you know, Nathan has come up and while he's playing music, he starts snorting cocaine in front of the whole congregation and says cocaine is the way to go and everyone should do cocaine, that's a notorious sin. And if we call him to repent and he says, no, man, everyone should do cocaine right here on the stage while we're worshiping God, that's a notorious sin. And if he keeps on rebelling, then that brings about excommunication. And excommunication in here is what? We're handing them over to Satan, right? We're removing the protection of the church. And we excommunicate them. And they become worse than a non-believer. A non-believer comes into church, and we let them in church, and we minister to them, and we invite them over, and we pray for them, and we want them to come to Christ. An excommunicated person comes into church, and we have cut them off. They can come into church, but they do not have fellowship with us. We have handed them over to Satan. They are disciplined and cut off until they repent. They are not to be in fellowship with us. We've handed them over to Satan, trusting that what has happened in the church has now happened in the heavenlies. And Paul says we've handed them over. The spiritual protection has been removed from them so that Satan may torment them and they may understand what a damnation is like or a taste of damnation is like if they are going to choose this path so that they may come back to the gospel to save his life. That's what it's like. In all these instances then, God uses both evil spirits and his good angels which have destructive abilities to punish or discipline the people of the Lord or wicked people. Now, David's sin here is to count his people. Now, this is interesting. We don't understand at the beginning of this chapter why this is a sin. People speculate. I've read different scholars. Nobody really knows. Here's the thing. The author doesn't tell us why this is a sin. We can speculate why it's a sin. People can kind of guess why, okay, it may have been this, it may have been that. The author doesn't care. The author's not interested in why this is a sin. He simply says this. The Lord is angry at Israel. Something that Israel has done has enticed this thing. And so the Lord says, go and count. And he tells David to do it in some kind of improper way. There's something David is going to do that is wrong. There's something about this census that is wicked. And he has incited David to do it in a wrong fashion. 
He sends Satan to do his bidding. Satan is allowed to go and to do it. He has unleashed Satan upon Israel is basically what's happened here. Israel has sinned, and God has said, go. Israel was protected, and now the protection is removed. Satan says, I'll do it. Go do it. That's what's happening here. And so he goes. And one person stands up and says, don't do it. Joab says, May the Lord, and 1 Chronicles 21, 3, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not, my Lord the King, all of them my Lord's servants? Why then should my Lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? That's why I said to you, Joab is not wicked. Joab also does bad things. He's a pragmatist, and that pragmatism sometimes leads him to do bad things. But notice that Joab is always faithful to David. And here, he's faithful to the Lord. No, king, don't sin. But a king can do what a king wants to do. And so the Lord, through David, or, well, David does this thing, and David sins. And that's all we need to know. The act is sinful. And David himself later tells us, 1 Chronicles 21, 7-8, But God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing, but now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. So it's an act that's wrong, but it's an act undertaken by David that will incite punishment against Israel for some particularly sinful behavior in which they are involved, and yet God sent Satan to do it, so is it David's fault? I don't know. This is really confusing. It's an action taken by the king that is an obvious ceremonial or legal violation of the law which everyone can see. And this violation is so obvious that when the punishment from God comes, no one will mistake the cause. That's how clear this action is. Right? That's how clear this action is. So my take, this is what's happening. This is my understanding. My take is that if the punishment had come without this obvious reason, the people of Israel would have attributed to the sickness that was to come, to any of the punishments that were to come, they would have pushed them off on something else. We do that all the time, right? If a punishment were to come upon America for its sins, we're going to push them on some other secular cause, some other reason, some other thing. We're going to dismiss that. If a punishment came upon another nation, any nation is going to do that. We're always going to blame some other thing. It couldn't be our behavior. It's not how we lived. We don't deserve this. How many people say that? Now, a lot of times... I mean, bad things don't always happen to us because of bad behavior, right? I'm not saying that. But sometimes bad things happen to us because of bad behavior, right? I mean, if I'm out there stealing left and right and I get thrown in jail, I can whine that I didn't deserve this, but I deserved it, right? If I'm a drug addict and I end up with diseases from a needle, I can whine that I didn't deserve it, but I was doing things that earned the disease. It's sad that it happened to me. But I shouldn't have been doing those things. That thing helped my behavior. 
If I'm living a life where I'm just pushing my life to the edge and I'm always an adrenaline junkie and I'm jumping off of things and I'm climbing Mount Everest and I'm going up K2 and whatever and I end up with frostbitten nose and body parts getting cut off, I can try to say I don't deserve it, but I was always pushing the envelope. Something's going to happen sooner or later. Bad things happen when we push the envelope. Tragedies can happen. But here, whatever happens is supposed to be clear and it's supposed to be connected to whatever, is, whatever the behavior is. God wants them to know that there's a clear and concise behavior. When David does this thing, the angel of the Lord will punish. When the prophet says, and he comes and says, this will be the punishment, the angel of the Lord will exact the punishment right now, the behavior will be linked to right now. Pick your punishment, it will come now. Israel must know that this behavior is now. There is no other cause. And this is why all the punishment options given to David involve the people of Israel, not his family. David is a good ruler. And when he drops down to beg the Lord, please put this on me and my family, not on the people of Israel, who is he foreshadowing? Jesus Christ, exactly. How do we know this? Who is Jesus called? All the time. Son of Jacob, Manasseh, son of David. He's foreshadowing the coming of the king, but of course, David can't save them. He can't offer his life for theirs. Why not? He isn't the son of God. A people's sins can't be redeemed by a human being. They have to be redeemed by the Son of God. We need a Savior, Jesus Christ, not a Savior, David the King. Now, sometimes the ways of God are confusing to us, and we aren't always meant to understand them. And we'll finish with this. The Anglicans have joined with believers all the way through the ancient church in understanding that there are things about God that are a mystery. And if you're going to live this life as a believer, you have to be comfortable with that. We can't always explain why God does what God does. We can't. And he doesn't always care to explain to you why he does what he does. And there are times in life when things happen, when you simply have to fall on your knees and say, it is enough for me to know that God is good. I don't know how you're working in this situation, but I have to trust that you are. We have to trust that sometimes in our limited capacity, we will not see the answers. That maybe the answers will not be known for a decade or two decades or ten decades. Maybe they are known, but they just won't be known to us until after we die. They won't be known until glory. God uses all sorts of means to accomplish his ends, even Satan. And this makes some people intensely uncomfortable. But on the other hand, 
when you really think about it, I think there's a lot of comfort in this too. Satan doesn't have free reign to attack a believer when he likes. Apparently, at least at some level, permission must be asked. Does he always have to ask? Like at every level, does a, does a demon have to ask before there's temptation? And not all temptations come from Satan, by the way. We're perfectly capable because we have our own sin nature. Does he always have to ask? I doubt it. But at least on some level, for some things, he has to ask permission. We see that throughout Scripture. He has to ask permission to tempt the people of God, and there should be some comfort in there. But it surely helps us to understand the meaning of this verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That way of escape is Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. When you face that temptation, you fall on your knees, you pray to the Father, you ask Jesus to help you in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.